0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today we are continuing our series on iconic ships in which we ask the curator of a historic vessel to make the case for their ship being iconic or we ask a historian to make a case for a ship which is lost to us now being iconic. Today we very much have one that survives. Always a sentence I'm delighted to say. Yes, we are talking about HMS Warrior. She survives today at Portsmouth Historic Dockyard and you can visit, look around her and be astonished. Please note that to go alongside this episode, we've done one of our clever animations, bringing a complicated ship plan to life. We've done this a couple of times before, with a very complicated plan of a K-class submarine. That's a steam submarine from the First World War. And also a bewildering boiler plan from the archives of the Lloyd's Register Foundation, both to great success. So I would urge you to look at those as well as what we've managed to achieve with HMS Warrior. In short, we took a broadside ship plan of the Warrior from the archives of the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich and then animated it. So various key aspects of her design grow out of the plan and then sink back into it, helping you understand what you are looking at by presenting it in 3D. It's quite difficult to explain, but seriously impressive to watch. And it makes perfect visual sense. That is available on the Mariner's Mirror podcast YouTube page and also on the Society for Nautical Research's Facebook page. And there will be shorter clips of the video shared across both Twitter and Instagram. But now to tell you about HMS Warrior, we have Jeremy Mitchell, Senior Curator Maritime Technologies at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich, London. Here's Jeremy. Jeremy, thank you very much for talking to me today. Uh, not at all, Sam. It's a pleasure. Right. HMS Warrior. Let's start with the big question. What was HMS Warrior?
1: Well, HMS Warrior was an iron framed ironclad, single single-gun-deck warship. Uh, and in fact, she is at Portsmouth, and people want to uh, go to see her to visualise uh, what she is, um, uh, what she looks like. Uh, she was launched in 1860 in a private yard uh, on the Thames, uh, designed by um, two uh, surveyors who are not particularly well known, but Isaac Watts and Joseph Large. And uh, in fact, we've got the plans for the ship uh, in the National Maritime Museum uh, collection. And the engines uh, were um, designed and built for the ship with the assistance of Thomas Lloyd, who is the chief engineer and inspector of uh, steam machinery.
0: I think when once we've, we've finished uh, talking about hms warrior it might be worth coming back to these people because uh, f- for the the scale of the extraordinary innovation that they managed to achieve i reckon they deserve to be better known what do you think
1: uh y- yeah I-, I do and in fact within our own collections um both isaac watts and joseph large you find their signatures on all sorts of plans covering this very experimental period
0: yeah and i i think the thing I love about this period, uh, let's just give it some dates, shall we? Actually, what sort of what, what period are we are we talking about? Um, eighteen sixty. So she was built um, in a, a, two or three years before then. Was it quite a quick turnaround? Uh,
1: it was quite a quick turnaround. In fact, um, what uh, um, the the Admiralty had discovered was that um, that the French were uh, looking to build uh, some kind of ironclad ships uh, in the eighteen uh, fifties. So by eighteen fifty eight uh, Britain was looking at uh, its own designs to 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 respond to this potential French threat so Warrior really only took just over a year or so to build um, and um, it we shouldn't be too surprised that uh, Warrior was warrior uh, because uh, Great Eastern had been launched in 1858 as an iron ship uh, on a massive scale. Uh, Warrior was um, the second longest ship when she was launched in 1860, two years later. So there, there's a lot of of um, technology swilling around within both the private and the public sector um, uh, in these, this very short time period. And it's really fascinating. It's actually quite an understudied uh, time period, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. I think... You know, Jeremy, it's such an extraordinary period of dramatic change, and it's it's almost impossible to get your head around the scale of what they were trying to do. It, everything they looked at, and they sort of said, "Well, that that that's not good enough for the future. Let's have a go at rethinking that." So it's a, it's the scale of innovation I am impressed by.
1: Uh, yes, uh, um, Warrior uh, is one of those ships where it's a time for the navy to become revolutionary rather than evolutionary um when you've got the largest navy in the world the last thing you want to do is make it obsolete um because then it allows your potential um rivals and enemies to to catch up um but actually this was one of those moments where um britain had been watching what was going on uh the french were building um uh, their wooden warships with iron cladding gloire was the um was the first uh, of that class, uh, launched in 1859, and they just ordered another five. So, Britain really had to counter this potential threat from across the Channel. And um, what really makes this revolutionary is that there was a conscious decision made, both within the Admiralty and politically, that if you build a ship like Warrior, you're now going to have to rely on your um, on your merchant or your private yard building and outbuilding your your potential enemy, but equally uh, that um, you will be able to economically support that massive um, increase in expenditure.
0: Yeah. I mean, the danger of revolutionary design, I don't think, is, is really considered enough. But I, I find that point, point fascinating that... The the problem is that if you build something new and you've got the world's largest navy, then you're you're digging yourself a pretty massive hole. But at some point you've got to take that leap. It takes real courage, doesn't it?
1: Um it, it does. Um I couldn't find the quote, but um there was a quote from um Packington, who was the first Lord of the Admiralty, uh, about how um politically brave that decision uh was. And the surveyor of the Navy at the time, um he he wrote to Pakenham saying, you know, we don't normally innovate like this, but actually it's being forced upon us by a foreign power um, and that we had to come up with a novel design of ship that would counter it and that that time had now arrived.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's not just a matter of the designers being courageous. You need the political support for people to pony up the money. And they're not just doing that to build you a new ship but there's a kind of a ghost of enormous expenditure that comes behind it um, which I think makes this moment particularly frightening indeed um, because not only are you building one ship you're potentially building a fleet of them.
1: Uh, Yes the the challenge of course when you uh, make your own fleet obsolescent uh, or or even obsolete so you can imagine that uh, when Warrior is launched Um, HMS Victory and all of her successors, even those with steam engines added, are now obsolete. Uh, Warrior could outgun and outpace any ship of the the Royal Navy. You're having to now make that decision of, well, we've got an innovative design which which we're going to have to keep on improving on, which will cost money, but actually what the Admiralty finds is that the government having had the appetite of taking that very large step from wooden warships with engines to an iron-framed ironclad uh, warship with warrior that they start to roll back and try to find cheaper versions of of warrior uh, as well as trying to resolve some of the um the issues that they found with warrior because she was so innovative
0: yeah i mean like the question isn't necessarily can you build a ship like warrior it's can you build them in greater numbers than us uh, yes. It's, yeah, you know, that's the implication, isn't
1: it? It, it? it is. And and that's why you get these different sort of warrior derivations that are slightly smaller. Uh, but equally, what the Navy was doing was they were going down a little bit of the French route, which was to ironclad wooden ships as well, just to build up numbers while they were then focusing on your sort of uh, the, the capital ship, like like warrior and black prince and uh, and Achilles and so on that, that come afterwards.
0: Yeah. I think one of the the key things as well is when you go and look at warrior at portsmouth as I very much hope all our listeners will go and do is to remember that um it was the result of not just design innovation but design innovation comes comes what comes with that are experiments but failures as much as the successes and so really really difficult to actually achieve and the, the the final result you look at when you see Warrior was in no way inevitable. Um, uh, no, it, I, I know, agree. A, yeah, a really tortuous process of design and birth.
1: Yes, and I, I think that um, the, the British um, government and the Admiralty were very lucky that they had an active and large shipbuilding uh, industry within the private sector. Um, so while the Admiralty were experimenting in the 1840s Uh, with um, paddles and screw propeller um, and with different kinds of engines and armour and iron construction, they were watching what was going on in the private uh, sector uh, where they were grappling with the same problems. But of course, their issues were motivated by how much trade capacity, how fast, whereas the Admiralty would be interested in how can that be utilised to create a powerful warship uh, that can police a maritime empire. And so you're, you're... You're right that Warrior, seen as a success, actually masks all of those incremental failures and successes that would have happened for decades beforehand, before there was that confidence that you could put this all together in one ship and create something like Warrior.
0: Yeah. We mentioned the Great Eastern there as well. And for those of you who are listening, do please make sure you check out a forthcoming video that uh, I've recently made on the great eastern we filmed a model a beautiful diorama which is held at the collections of the national maritime museum um filmed it in the most minute detail quite extraordinary um so do make sure you look at that but the the key difference between great eastern which is a passenger ship merchant ship um and the warrior as a warship apart from the the functions of them is the propulsion so jeremy tell us a bit about um about warrior's propulsion
1: yeah, so Warrior's propulsion was uh, was still a hybrid uh, between sail and steam. Uh, she had a, a two-bladed lifting propeller, which the Admiralty had been experimenting with. In fact, um, Erebus and Terra had gone off to the Arctic with Sir John Franklin with a two-bladed lifting propeller in a very similar way uh, of lifting it up through the deck in a well. Uh, and Warrior had the, the same, but actually I, I I seem to recall reading that they very rarely lifted the propeller because it was such a faff to uh, to bring it up uh, and they ended up just leaving it fixed in place uh, while they were under sail so what the, you would end up doing is you'd lower the funnels which were um uh which were telescopic down towards the deck so that you could get the sails out and you could then sail her like a regular ship um and you would just disconnect the uh, the propeller blade so that um it um from the steam engine, and then uh, off you'd go. Um, but of course, the, the problem with, with Warrior was that she was quite a long and slender ship, which meant that sailing was fine in straight lines, but as soon as you wanted to either go through the wind, through the tacking or, or jibing, uh, it became a bit more of a problem, and sometimes they would actually use a combination of sail and steam in order to do those sorts of manoeuvres.
0: Yeah. I was fascinated reading about that, when you've got a sailing vessel, which has also got... St- steam funnels and the danger of setting fire to your own rig was very real
1: that, that's right uh, i think the the phrase they used to use uh if i remember correctly from when i went round warrior uh, years ago was uh you would say um down funnels up screw uh which was um they then then preparing the ship for sale but actually reality was that they they didn't always do that um and uh, and of course, if you have the funnels up, you then can't really use the sails around the main mast because, as you say, you might set fire to them.
0: Yeah. So what we got here is it's something kind of reminiscent of the SS Great Britain. And again, uh, listeners, if you're out there, um, do please check out the episode on Brunel's SS Great Britain, because she was uh, we, we have a screw propeller there and also a rig. So, um that was, you know, similar to something that had been had been tried before. Um, but what really makes Warrior different is that is is her size and and the the armor, in particular. I, I find that extraordinary. The, the the changes in the construction.
1: Yes, the uh, uh, where the French had um, clad uh, a wooden framed. Uh, warship, a traditional warship with with iron as a way of protecting it against um, against cannon fire. Um, the the British government or the Admiralty took it one stage further, and um, they actually worked out um, through trial and error what they felt the thickness of iron plating should be, and created this um, this kind of box uh, that was armour plated. So, even though some of the guns that were outside the box and therefore were more exposed, those inside were in impenetrable uh, iron um, armored plating, which was about uh, um, I think it was four inches um, and uh, they they found that this uh, thickness of armor plating uh, was effective against all known guns at the time, um, but of course the the issue then you have is that if you innovate with your armor, someone's then going to have to design a gun that can pierce that armor. So you end up with a, a sort of unofficial arms race between those who design your armor plating and those who then design the guns to, to penetrate it. And the, the warrior uh, experimented with a, um, a system called tongue and groove iron plating, but it was found to be quite expensive and it added weight and they found that the shock impact when um, they were experimenting with um, gunfire against it, um, the, the tongue and groove allowed um, the shock wave to uh, to transmit into adjoining plates, causing them to crack. So after that, they went back to um, dovetailing them together, abutting them, sorry, together. Um, so that was um, experiments that then were done with Warrior in order to understand uh, the impact, because, of course, the trouble with being an innovative ship and um dreadnought, in nineteen o six suffers from this problem is that they are made obsolescent very quickly as designs accelerate away from them as the innovator um, though unlike Dreadnought, who at least sank a submarine during the first world war uh, warrior actually didn't fire a shot in anger.
0: Yeah. Tell me about the forced ventilation system this I think is extraordinary. <laughs>
1: Um, yes, so uh, um, they they came up with this idea, uh, and you can imagine being on victory at uh, Trafalgar, you've got all the guns firing and the smoke starts to collect on the lower deck. So uh, on Warrior to get around that uh, and to make her an effective fighting platform, they installed a forced ventilation ventilation system uh, using steam-driven fans that kept the pressure on the gun deck. Uh, higher than atmospheric pressure in order to drive that smoke outboard. Um, so actually the those operating the guns uh, had a much clearer view of what was going on both inside the ship and also if you're looking out through the gun ports, uh, you could then see more clearly what was going on outside, unlike your your enemy who would suffer the age-old problem of, of gun smoke hanging around with, uh, within the gun decks. Yeah.
0: It's technology that kind of reminds me of operating theatres or spaceships, (laughs) and yet they've managed to do it in the Victorian period on a warship.
1: Uh, Yes, uh, we we like to feel that um, we we invent things in the 21st century and that technology uh, rapidly changes in the 21st century. But uh, I think if if we spent more time looking back at this particularly innovative period, we'd realise that the technological change of the past can be as rapid uh, and feel as rapid, which it did uh, at the time.
0: Mm. Uh, tell me about the molten iron in the shells as well. I mean, you might assume that here's a warship when it's got um, it's got portholes for the cannon to be uh, to be you know wheeled out and fired as per normal. But by no means were these normal guns.
1: Uh, no, some of the uh, so the guns that were put on uh, the ship were relatively experimental anyway, uh, and were <laughs> by the end of it not found to. To work particularly efficiently, so they had put a hundred-pound Armstrong guns, which were the new design, um, but then they they uh, they reordered them uh, and got a slightly um, lower. Uh, poundage guns on board because they knew that they worked better but one of the things they they were experimenting with was um they put a blast furnace down in the boiler room to fill martin shells so martin shells were a shell that had uh, molten iron poured into them and a stopper put in and they had to be fired within four minutes of being filled uh it was it was like the 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 mid-19th century equivalent of um, heating up your your shot during the 18th century to fire at a wooden warship in the hope of setting it on fire. One of the things they, they did find was that actually when they'd heated the molten iron, put it in the shell, it actually stayed red hot for at least an hour. So this idea initially that it had to be fired within four minute, minutes of filling um, was a bit of a, a red herring. Um, but of course, you know, having this um, on board ship when Warrior, and then you've got Gloire and a couple of other French ironclads, you know, they they are the only ones that would have um, been protected. All the other ships of the of other navies would have been wooden. So this is quite a major threat that uh, um, uh, that that these countries would have had to have dealt with uh, when uh, addressing what Warrior stood for within their own um, naval designs.
0: Yeah, I've always imagined it to be pretty horrible in any ship's boiler room, but a a, a boiler room in an iron warship, which is also has a furnace for for molten iron, is kind of unimaginable, like the gates of hell. Uh,
1: yes, and you 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 look at when you look at Warrior, you can see that there's um, the, there's quite a lot of um, mm-hmm. ventilation cowlings to uh, to force air down below into uh, the engine rooms to not only keep them cool but also to expel. All of that heat and uh, um, and fumes that's being produced um, uh, from the furnaces and from the um, from the boilers mm.
0: it 's fascinating the way that with all of this innovation you 've got a very vulnerable part of the ship that the main bit is the you know the engines the boilers. Um, and it's all very much in the centre of the ship. It's so different to a sailing warship where the vulnerable parts are to do with the rig, essentially, because if you can disable the ship, then it becomes stationary and then you can sail around it and take it to pieces bit by bit. But they, they solved the problem here with Warrior by building this this box or citadel. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, the citadel um, was, uh, was the armour-plated box and within there were the, the main guns, Uh, the engines and the boiler. So if the ship was hit um, uh, at the bow or the stern, um, unlike in the 18th century Navy, where if you fired a broadside um, through the stern, those cannonballs would just disappear straight down the gun decks, causing havoc. On Warrior, if you tried that, um, they would hit the the four and a half inch thick um, citadel armor plating um, that protected uh, the, the majority of the, the gun deck and the engines. So uh, the ship was actually very well protected. Um, they, the bow and stern, while, while they didn't have any of the armour plating, they did have watertight bulkheads, which was the first time for a warship to have these watertight bulkheads. Um, and in fact, um, I think subsequent workers discovered that if all of those watertight bulkheads had been compromised, she would have uh, sunk about 26 inches in the water but still floated. Um, so, they, <laughs> so they really had over-engineered um, solutions to problems that they were used to needing to think about with wooden warship design.
0: Yeah, and this the the citadel is interesting because it's you need to be told about it. It's not kind of visually apparent when you look at the ship from uh, externally. But one thing that is is the beautiful lines of the warrior and how she has a kind of a very elegant clipper bow, which makes her um, so distinctively. Different from later armoured warships, but that wasn't a brilliant idea, was it? That bow?
1: Uh, no, no. Uh, I'm. I, I. I. will say that I was. I was. How was I? I? Was eight when Warrior came into Portsmouth, and I was there with my camera, and I just remember seeing how beautiful this ship looked. And um, and what makes that ship beautiful is that that clipper bow and that frigate stern, that elliptical stern, but in the d- In designing the ship, what they effectively did was they added an extra 40 tonnes of weight by putting a clipper bow on Warrior, and you then see in in subsequent designs the the bows become much straighter. They become straight-stemmed, and then after the Battle of Lissa in was it 1866, they start to create um, ram bows. So you do away with this clipper bow, and it's of course at that point that um, you see the the demise of figureheads on on warships because if you've got a straight stem, you've got no nowhere to put a figurehead unless you you build a a knee out on purpose to put one on, and. Uh, um, it, it's a shame, if you like your ships looking elegant, that it disappears. But I, I suppose it was done partly through aesthetics, but also it was what they knew. Um, they This was how you built wooden warships, so you you stick to what you know as well. And it's only through um, seeing how well that works in a new design that you then make those amendments subsequently.
0: Yeah. Oh, and that so the subsequent period when rams come into use is extraordinary, is it? Because they... They, it, it's a period where they turn the ship itself into a weapon rather than the ship being a, a platform for gunnery.
1: It's a, it's an odd one, isn't it? It was a bit of a dead end because um, the Battle of Lissa proved to you that if the ship you're going to ram was stationary in the water and unable to fire guns at you, then they were a legitimate target. But actually, reality, if if you... Um, were both under steam, firing guns at each other. Would you really want to get that close as a as a captain to to ram the enemy? Um, but I think at the, one of the upsides was that by putting a ram bow on, uh, you actually improve the hydrodynamics of the uh, uh, of the bow anyway. And you look at modern ships now; they they're not ram bows, but they do have those bulbous bows. So you can almost see some kind of sort of logical progression.
0: Mm. Yeah. this part is part of our iconic ships series and um it does strike me that we should probably spend a bit of time about thinking what what would make a ship uh iconic or not what are your views on that
1: yes what makes an iconic ship is always an interesting question isn't it um Sometimes uh, ships are iconic because they're the last surviving example of their kind, and you know, you've got HMS Belfast, HMS Caroline, um, you've got Victory, uh, and in fact, you've got um, you've got Warrior. Um, Warrior is the only surviving ironclad warship from the Victorian period um, in the UK, but Victory, sorry, but Warrior takes it just that little bit further. She's the combination of uh, evolutionary technology with revolutionary ideas that um, ultimately creates the most powerful warship of her age, rendering all other warships obsolete and inspires a revolution in battleship design, which you see all the way through up to and including sort of Dreadnought and then the, the sort of Dreadnought era of, of battleships.
0: Yeah. And it's easy to forget that if you've, if you've transformed warship design, then by definition, you've transformed everything else, particularly dockyards.
1: That's right. Um, the reason why Warrior and Black Prince, were, uh, which was uh, Warrior's sister ship, uh, were built in private yards was that um, naval dockyards were not geared up to building iron uh, ships uh, like these two, whereas these private yards had been building um, uh, iron uh, merchant ships. And so warrior ends up transforming how naval dockyards are laid out and um and instigates uh changes in trade so you go from having traditional carpenters uh, and lofting floors where the people are used to working in in wood uh you now have smithies and foundries and the associated infrastructure to support that um and um what you end up with is is a, a, again a, a massive investment financially in in changing the the various naval dockyards around the United Kingdom to to cope with this this new design because ultimately the decision to go with an iron framed uh, ironclad will make every other wooden ship obsolete um, and you you won't go back to that and you can see this with the discussions over. HMS Victory and her restoration in the 1920s that there are very few people who who have that kind of experience of working with wooden ships because the dockyard uh, infrastructure has changed so dramatically in that time.
0: Yeah I mean it's worth thinking about what the logical next step would have been if Warrior hadn't come along so you've got wooden ships which are they're, they're clearly not going to be strong enough. Um, so this, the the obvious solution would be to keep the wooden frames, but to put iron plating on the wooden frames. But that, of course, means that you are restricted in the size of vessel you can build. And it's this, you know, evolutionary step which they jumped, isn't it? They they did. I,
1: I think um, watching what the French uh, were, were doing was quite a useful um, sort of discussion point uh, for the for the navy and for the naval designers. Uh, you, you'd ended up having to have put so much ironwork to to support all of this additional ironwork on a wooden ship that actually it makes sense just to go for an iron ship. Um, I did come across uh, in our collection a, a proposal from a London-based um, shipbuilder in the 1830s where he'd been discussing iron ships, but of course their, his concern was that iron rusts in water so his solution was to cover everything in, that was in made of iron in rubber and then stick it all together uh so it protected it so you 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 do have these issues that that need resolving and and the biggest one for the navy was that you've already built the biggest uh wooden ships you can with engines in them but of course they sag at both ends under the weight of everything they hog uh so you then put more iron bracing inside uh, to stop that, but now you're adding extra weight to the ship, and if you then put iron on the outside, you're adding even more weight. So you you end up needing to look at how you can reduce weight. Well, the way you reduce the weight is you you start to have to move into using iron. So there is a logical progression for warrior being built, but they they missed out the the whole sort of wood iron cladding experiment and went straight into iron frame. Uh, iron cladding
0: mm. and what about her career you mentioned briefly that she never fired a shot in anger what did she do
1: um warrior did spend uh quite a bit of time uh undertaking uh experimental trials um and uh, her first captain um uh Cochrane i think his surname was he he was very interested in the ship and he recommended um uh alterations and improvements uh which then fed into subsequent designs um Warrior uh, did undertake um, tours. Um, I can't remember wh- whether in the end she might have towed uh, a floating dock over to the to Barbados, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but it, it wasn't particularly uh, a glorious uh, career just because um, the subsequent um, designs uh, that had been based on Warrior made her and herself obsolescent. And it was also generally a time of peace uh, there was no major conflicts going on. So the Royal Navy was very much focusing on, on policing its own interests within its maritime empire. Uh, and that involved having a home fleet because um, there was a continual suspicion about what the French were up to. And uh, it didn't help that Gloire had been seen as a direct challenge to uh, Britain's supremacy and the Royal Navy. So Um, warrior would have been kept at the home as a home fleet defense ship because of her her status Um, so yeah it's uh it's unfortunate when you're an innovative ship you rarely get the opportunity to um, to prove your mettle
0: and her story is a little similar to the ss great britain as well because um, she was in a very, very sad state before coming back to Portsmouth. Can you tell us a little about about that? And you mentioned uh, seeing her come back in 87, it must have been, to Portsmouth. What had happened to the, her at the end of her career?
1: Yeah, so um, sadly, uh, um, um, and it actually is a bit of a compliment, I suppose, to the Victorian designers and builders. Um, Warrior ended up uh, as a, a, a hulk, a floating platform uh, in um, South Wales in Uh, I think uh, Pembroke um, uh, and used as a a floating pontoon for um, ships to go alongside. Um, And there was then a drive uh, to to save the ship. And because Warrior was so well built, uh, her state of preservation was incredible and actually made it a viable option and uh, eventually was towed to uh, Hartlepool, where they undertook quite a long uh, restoration and of course uh, I as a child saw the end result of that which was warrior being towed um, into Portsmouth Harbour and um, with the two tugs one at each end with firing jets of water with this flotilla of yachts surrounding it was just an incredible experience and now of course she's uh, moored in, um, in Portsmouth Harbour um, for people to go around and in fact when you go around the ship you can see the uh, armour plating where they've cut through the bulkheads on purpose to provide a free flow through. You can see the thickness of the armour plating and of the, the, the teak backing um, that was the sandwich between the armour plating and the iron framing of the ship and you get a real insight and, into how well engineered this ship was.
0: Well, they did very well building an indestructible ship, but because it's still here. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Very impressive. Jeremy, thank you so much for talking to me today.
1: Not at all. Thank you.
0: Thank you all for listening. Do please follow us on social media. In particular, please seek out the Mariner's Mirror podcast on YouTube, where you will find an ever-growing library of the most wonderful, innovative videos presenting our maritime past in entirely new ways. Uh, Please spread the word about the podcast. Tell your friends. But above all, please join the Society for Nautical Research. It doesn't cost very much, but your subscription fee will help support this podcast. It will help us publish the Mariner's Mirror journal. It will help preserve our maritime heritage. And, as a paying member, you get to come to our annual dinner on board HMS Victory. What a treat that is! And you can find out everything we've been doing recently and in the past, been running for over a century, all of this at snr.org.uk